Well, good morning. Good to see you all this morning. Thank you so much for being here. If you have a Bible, please go to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, we're going to pick up our study of Luke in verse 14. If you have a pew Bible, that's page 1033. 1033. If you'd like to turn there, 1033. And let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we come so thankful that we get to sit in a climate-controlled room on padded seats with friends and open your word and once again have your Holy Spirit speak to us. So Lord, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what you have for us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' good and powerful name and everybody said, Amen. Amen. You know, one of the things that we learn from our culture around us uh, is uh, we spend a lot of time trying to label one another. We spend a lot of time trying to label ourselves. And we, we say, you know, well, I'm, I'm this or I'm that, or I'm this kind of that or that kind of this. And we try to, you know, get as precise as we can in identifying who we are as a person on a, on a social grid. And then we do this for other people too. What kind of person are you or what kind of Christian are you? And we spend a lot of times just trying to dice that down so that we can locate who we are or who someone else is. And by locate, I'm saying locate them on some kind of social spectrum, right? And part of labeling people uh, is a lot of times it, we know if we can figure out someone's label, we can figure, figure out someone's definition or who they are and describe them, then we know what to expect from them. We know the kind of words and actions then. If we can label you, uh, we know what to expect from you. Now, Jesus, as he was going throughout his ministry, had to deal with this as well. What we see Jesus do is going around living out the messianic vision cast by God in the Old Testament on what it was that the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do. What this means is, is that Jesus did not live into the wishful thinking and the ideologies of the first century Judeans. They all had a picture of what they thought the Messiah should be. They all had a picture of what they thought the Messiah should be doing. Instead, what Jesus does is he simply goes about being the Messiah, which he was, living that out in front of people, and then he let people respond. He didn't try to correct the narratives that were around all the time. He just simply lived as the Messiah, and then he left it up to the people to respond to him in what they heard him teach and what they saw him do. And that's what's going on here in Luke chapter 11. We're actually going to be covering a lot of verses this morning, so I'm not going to read it, but we're going to walk through this. But the text opens up in verse 14, and it says, Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. So Jesus is going around, and Luke just writes this one-liner that Jesus is doing ministry. He's doing what the Messiah was going to do in setting the captives free. He heals this man. The demon comes out. Now the man can speak as proof that it really was a miracle. And Luke just kind of writes it in one sentence. And then what we see in the text is there are three responses. There are three particular responses from the people in the crowd. First, it says, after the mute man spoke, it says, and the people marveled at the end of verse 14. But verse 15 says, but some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Verse 16, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. 
So Jesus is just going about being the Messiah. He's going about healing people, setting people free, doing what God said the Messiah would do, what God said in the Old Testament. And as he's doing this, people are just reacting and responding in these three primary ways. We see it throughout the Gospels. We also see it today. Whenever God does something, like truly does something in our lives or in the lives of people around us, we're going to respond in one of these three ways too. Notice that some people were amazed. They marveled. They saw this miracle and they said, this must be God. God must be on the move among us. But then some people really just threw out an accusation. Some of the crowd just said, oh, no, 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 this must be Satan. They just completely wrote off what Jesus was doing. They made an accusation. And then the third group of people wanted to test him. They wanted another sign. And I say another sign because he just gave them a sign. I mean, I don't know about you, but a demon being cast out of a man who could not speak and now he can speak, that's a pretty, pretty good sign, right? But now they want another sign. Look, we want you to prove it again. And, and many times this is our reaction as well as human beings. Either we're, we have an open heart and we're sensitive to what God is doing, or we have a closed heart and we just slander what God is doing, or we find ourselves with a skeptical heart, just saying, I need more evidence, I need more proof, God. And so with these three reactions taking place to this miracle, the rest of the text spends more time expounding on how the crowd reacted than it did actually the miracle itself. Now, in verse 17, we see that Jesus knows the hearts of the people. He knows their thoughts. Whenever this takes place, three different reactions are happening with the crowd. And verse 17 says, but he, that's Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them. So as Jesus is looking at the crowd and everybody who's there, and they're not all the same. They didn't all come from the same family and all that. It's a very diverse group. But he knows exactly what's running through their minds. And so what Jesus does is he gives six illustrations that I think hit wherever a person in the crowd may find themselves. And he just kind of rattles off these six illustrations. But he's using logic and spiritual wisdom to, to really combat the thoughts that are running through their head. So let's run through them. Notice he says first, verse 17, but he knowing their thoughts, so that's his premise for saying everything he's about to say, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, one, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. If Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebul. Now, we've talked about the name or title Beelzebul before. It's just a way of referencing Satan. It goes back to the Old Testament, the Old Testament God of Baal, or as we say, Baal, right? So the first thing Jesus says is, guys, you know that a house divided against itself will not stand. It's not going to happen. And if you say that I am of Satan, it makes no logical sense because I just cast out a demon. The second illustration he gives is that of Jewish exorcists. So in verse 19, he says, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons, meaning your spiritual sons, so the Pharisees' disciples, cast them out. Therefore, they will be your judges. So the second image that he gives, he says, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And not only that, he says, what about those itinerant exorcists that you send out, religious people? And that was a big business in the first century. You would have Jewish religious exorcists who would go around. They would charge people money, of course. And then they would try to cast demons out of people or pray over people that they may be healed. 
And, and Jesus, again, just using logic, he says, you don't say this about your own disciples. And then he uses a third image. We see it in verse 20. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God is now in your midst. And he uses the image of the finger of God, pointing back to the Exodus story where Pharaoh's magicians use this language. And the image of the finger of God uh, points to the power that God has, but it's not just power that he has in heaven. It's power that intervenes in our life. It's when God touches down in a particular place. Then he uses a fourth image, and this is the image of the stronger man. Verse 21, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe, but when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor, in which he trusted, and divides his spoil. So Jesus uses an image that there is a stronger man that is now on the scene in real time, in real space, in human history, and Jesus is the one claiming to be that stronger man who has now come into the enemy's territory, he's come into Satan's territory, and he's stripping him of his armor. Then he uses another image, and that's the image of a shepherd and a flock. Verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. The gather-scatter language is that of a shepherd and a flock. And Jesus is making a very simple point that if you're not on my side, then you're actually on Satan's side, and all it's going to do is create scattering in your life. There will be no gathering. There will be no unity in that sense. And then he uses the image of the empty house. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Now remember, Jesus is just rattling off these, these illustrations one after another. And they're just sitting there listening. And he says, a house divided against itself will not stand. It, it just does not make sense. If Satan is casting out demons, he's going to bring about his own downfall. The same logic should be applied to the Jewish exorcist because they would be doing the very same thing. Not only that, Jesus casting out demons actually demonstrate that God's finger is touching down on earth, that the kingdom of God is now among them. Not only that, Jesus is the stronger man who triumphs over the enemies, he triumphs over the demons, he triumphs over Satan. And not only that, since that is true, you have to choose. You're either on Jesus' side or you're on Satan's side. You either gather or you're scatter. And if, how you choose, Jesus says, matters. Because what he's saying to the people in this day, the image of the empty house, is that you run the risk of becoming increasingly more evil than you are right now. And after Jesus fires off these six illustrations real fast, he gives them this one foundational truth. A lady in the crowd calls out, verse 27 says, and says, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But Jesus said back, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. He says, the foundation of everything that I've just told you, all these illustrations that he's throwing at them, meets them at a place where they're skeptical, yes, and he says they all point to this reality, this truth, that you need to hear the word of God and you need to keep it. 
And what he uses an image three times throughout the text. We see it in verse 17, we see it in verse 21, we see it in verses 24 and 25, and that's the image of a house. Sometimes it's translated household, sometimes palace, and then another time house. And around those three images, if you look at the six uh, illustrations that Jesus gives here, he's conveying three important truths. He's saying when you obey, when you hear and obey the word of God, you are going to be unified. You're going to be unified with God. You're going to be unified with your brothers and sisters. The church is going to be unified, right? Because the kingdom divided is not going to stand, but God's in the business of bringing people together and bringing people to him. The second thing he's communicating is that when you hear the word and you keep it, you obey it, he says, then that is when you have protection. You have the stronger man who now can defeat Satan. God is your shepherd. He is the one that watches over you. And not only is there unity and not only is there protection, when you hear the word and you keep it, he says, I'm the one that will indwell you. I'm not going to leave the house empty. I'm not going to leave it empty. I'm not going to just go in and clean everything up on the inside and then leave you alone to figure it out on yourself. He goes, oh no, I come to dwell within. And you're either going to have my presence in you or you're going to have Satan's presence in you. Jesus is clear about that. And so Jesus brings these six illustrations down to this one foundational truth. He says, the thing you need the most in life is to hear the word and then keep it, do it. Now, this generation, though, that Jesus is living in is pretty skeptical. Sound familiar? Nothing has really changed, by the way. So we see in verse 29, it says, when the crowds were increasing... Now, right there, we would say, oh, Jesus is doing a good job. He's getting really big crowds. That's a great church, church growth model, right? So Jesus stands up. Now that he's got a big crowd, instead of everybody, making everybody feel warm and fuzzy on the inside, Jesus says, this generation is an evil generation. <laughs> I love how Jesus does that. He gets a big crowd, and he just, you know, gets honest. But here's why. He says, it seeks a sign. The problem is they keep wanting a sign. And so what Jesus does here is he says, I'm going to give you a sign. It's not going to be the one you expect. But there's going to be an external sign, and then there's going to be an internal response to that sign. You could call it an internal sign if you want to. It's going to be an external sign, an internal response, and then there's an eternal question. So notice what Jesus says here. He says, this generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. No sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. For Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Jesus says, the sign that you're going to see is the sign of Jonah, which is resurrection. He's saying, I'm the one that's going to go into, really go into the belly of the whale, the belly of the big fish for three days, and I'm the one that's going to come out. I'm the one that's going to bring resurrection. And what Jonah experienced only pointed toward what Jesus ultimately would experience, not just for this earth and on this earth, but cosmically as well. He says, so I'm going to give you a sign. But he goes on and he says something interesting. After he says, Jonah became a sign for the people of Nineveh, and so I will be for this generation, he says, the queen of the south, by the way, that has, that's not a person in Alabama, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment, notice that, will be appalled at the judgment. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. 
For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The queen of the south, referring to the queen of Sheba, so think 1 Kings 10, 2 Chronicles 9. You can read that story there. where she, Jesus is saying she was on a quest for wisdom. She wanted wisdom from Solomon, not a sign. She sought the truth, not demanded a sign from God. And he says, that's the problem with this generation, the one Jesus is living in. They want me to prove it. They want evidence over and over again. He says, I'm only going to give one sign, only one, and that is going to be my resurrection. He says, but on the day of judgment, even the queen of Sheba, she's going to stand up appalled at this generation because at least she sought wisdom. At least she sought the truth. And then Jesus says, there's, there, there's going to be an internal response to this. He says, the sign is going to be the sign of Jonah, that is resurrection. He says, the queen of the south is going to rise up at the judgment against the men of this generation because they're not seeking wisdom. And then he says in verse 32, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment. He says the same line. Now it's the men of Nineveh. They're going to rise up and be appalled at the judgment with this generation and condemn them for they repented. The men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus says, the sign you're gonna get is the sign of Jonah, it's resurrection. He says, but your internal response to that sign is your personal repentance. Will you see the sign and repent? And what Jesus is doing is he's connecting these two. He's saying, if you seek wisdom, wisdom will lead you to repentance. Because when you see how great God is, when you see God in all of his glory, and you see how small you actually are compared to him, when you see that, that is the wisdom of God, when you see how wise he is, it will always lead you to repentance. But as long as you seek a sign to test God, as long as that's your goal, when you seek a sign, you're, you're going to ask for it again and again and again and again. See, because when we're testing God, when we're seeking a sign for God, from God, we ask for a sign today, and then guess what we do tomorrow? God, I need another sign. I need you to show me again. I need you to prove to me you're there again. Lord, I know you were with me yesterday, but are you there again? Are you real today? And Jesus says, that's the problem. Instead of seeking the wisdom of God, we're seeking to test God and wanting him to prove himself once again to us. And even in our own generation, we say things like, I need evidence or I need proof. We need to remember these terms. They're very important in how you define them. Because evidence is facts offered that support a claim of truth. That's what evidence is. Proof is what we infer from the facts offered. And Jesus is saying you can spend your life playing the evidence-proof game if you want to. That's fine. But I'm calling you to seek wisdom to seek the wisdom of heaven, to seek the wisdom of the throne room of God. That's what's going to lead you to understand who God is in his nature and his character as seen in the resurrection. It's going to help you understand who you really are, and it will always lead to repentance. Or you can spend your life playing the evidence-proof game. And then Jesus puts before him an eternal question. And the question is simple. He pulls on an old image that he's already used in the Gospel of Luke. He used it back in Luke 8.16. And the image is that of light. 
He says in verse 33, and again, he's just saying this. He's teaching the crowd. After he says this about Nineveh, about the queen of the south, about Jonah, he says, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. They may see the light, not a light. They may see the light. And Jesus' question that he's putting before the people in this day is simply, do you see the light? That's what he's asking them. Do you see the light of what I'm saying to you? Do you see that I am the light? Let's put it this way. Jesus is saying, I am the one that you cannot put in a cellar. I am the one that you cannot put under a basket. I'm the one you can't put in a grave. He's saying, I'm the one that will be on a stand. I'm the one that will be on the cross. And when I am lifted up, I'm going to draw all people to me. Do you not see, he's saying to the crowd, do you not see that I am the light of the world? And what he's saying to the audience on this day, he's saying, I want you to prepare yourself. He uses the image there in verses 34 and 30 through 36 of an eye. Eye is a lamp of the body. And what he's saying to the crowd here, he's saying, how will you guys look at the resurrection? When I finally give you the sign of Jonah, how will you see it? And he's calling on the crowd then to prepare themselves for that moment. Prepare themselves for the moment when he is lifted high on the stand, on the cross, when he's put in the cell or put in the grave, and he comes out again. And the sign of Jonah is revealed. And he's challenging them. He's saying, how will you see it in that moment? And the sign is the resurrection because it's in Jesus' resurrection where he will illuminate and expose everything in the world that is true and everything in the world that is false. It's in the resurrection where Jesus is the one who displays humanity for what it really is. Jesus, uh, we see this image used about Jesus over and over throughout scripture. This was part of the messianic vision of who Jesus would be. We see Isaiah chapter nine, verse two, Isaiah talking hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came on the scene. This is the same verse that the gospel writers use that talk about Jesus' birth and his incarnation. Isaiah said in Isaiah 9, 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Isaiah saying that day is coming. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. This image of light, you can track it through the Old Testament and then you see it in the New Testament as well. That's why John uses this image in John 1, 4. He says, in him, that is Jesus, was life and that life was the light of man. In verse 9, he says, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. Jesus says in John 8, 12, it says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. You don't get any more clear than that. I am the one who is the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. It's John 12, 46. Jesus says, I've come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. And what we have to remember is that Jesus, being the light of the world, being the one that exposes all that there is, again, both good and bad, he illuminates the good, he exposes the bad. This has been God's plan all along. When God was creating the world in Genesis, he's thinking about pointing toward that day when his son was gonna have to come. This didn't like catch him off Guard, God was not like surprised. Oh man, people are so evil and they sinned against me. Now I gotta figure something out. No, 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 this was the plan. That's why 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul writes and he says, for God who said, 
let light shine out of the darkness, referring to Genesis. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, made his light to shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Which means even the creation story is foreshadowing Christ. When God says, in the beginning, let there be light, he knows that one day he will send the true light into the world. And the true light is not the sun. S-U-N. He knew what it was going to cost, but he knew what to do. When it comes to the light exposing who we are, this is not just about conversion. It's not just about justification. It's also about our sanctification. It's when the light shines on us that we become more like him. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5, 8, for you were once darkness. Notice he didn't say you were once in darkness. He says you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. When we live as children of light, we are becoming more and more like Christ. That is what sanctification is. But it's not just justification. It's not just sanctification. It's also glorification because the picture of the end, of the very end of time as we know it, Revelation 21, 23, it says this, when the city is coming down out of heaven to earth, the new Jerusalem, it says the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is its lamp. The picture we get of beginning to end is that there is only one who is the light of the world. And Jesus is saying to the people who first heard him rattle off these six illustrations, give this one foundational truth, tell them about the sign of Jonah. He's saying to them, do you see it? In fact, he warns them in verse 35 and says, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. He says, be careful unless you think that you're actually enlightened and it's actually darkness. And there he's pointing to the fact that he is the source. He has to be the source because he is the true light. And just like the people in this text in verse 14, 15, and 16, the question that we have and that we have to wrestle with is how will we respond? Will we look at this and will we hear this and will we be amazed and will we marvel at who Jesus is? Or will we just throw out an accusation and write him off and say, well, it's really not of God? Or will we seek to test, to test God every day? Lord, just show me you're here, prove yourself with a skeptical heart. And the question is, how will we respond to that? Let's change the question. If you flip the question around, I could ask it this way. Are you living in darkness? And if so, how's that working for you? Are you living in darkness? And are you tired of living in darkness? That's the reverse question. Living in the darkness is draining. Constantly hiding is draining. But so many times we become very content with living in the shadows, don't we? You know what the definition of a shadow is and how it works. A shadow is a dark area or shape produced by something coming between rays of light and a surface And when something comes between the light and us, we live in the shadows. But we get so content living there. 
And many times we're afraid to step out of the shadows because we're afraid that we would see the real us. So many times we don't want to step out of the shadows because we do not want to see the real me, right? But that's what Jesus calls us to do. He calls us to step out, to see him for who he is, see the light of his resurrection, how that in the resurrection, death no longer has a hold on anyone. That in the resurrection now, there's not just life on the planet, there's eternal life with him. The sacrifice has been offered. He died in our place for our sins. And when that truth and that revelation shines on us, it changes everything. You know, if you talk to people who paint, like really paint, not like paint walls, but paint paintings. I don't paint paintings. But when you talk to people who paint, they'll tell you that light is very important in a painting. Because light lifts the painting, it, it emphasizes features, and it brings depth to the painting all at the same time. It lifts the painting off the canvas, it emphasizes features, and it brings depth to the painting. I believe that when we step into the light, God does the same thing. When we step into the light, God lifts us out of our sin. He, it emphasizes features. He emphasizes our worth and our eternal worth to him. But then also he gives us depth and meaning that we can't find anywhere else. I think that's what the light does for us. But the question is, how will we respond? And so many times we say, no, I don't want to step out into the light. We just protest and say, no, I don't want to step out into the light. Because, because light burns you. It can. But the promise of Jesus is that he will only burn those things away that are not of him in you. He will only burn those things away which are not of him so that we can be more like him. I started the sermon by saying that the world we live in, we like to label things, don't we? We like to label ourselves. We like to define ourselves. We like to label others so that we can define them, so that we can know what to expect from them. But I think what Jesus is getting at here is that if we would step into the light, we would step into the light of the resurrected one and be known by him, be seen by him, and let him eternally define us. That would change everything. And what would it be if we would drop all the other labels? What if we dropped all the other labels that we tried to impose on ourselves and others so that we define ourselves? What if we dropped all the other labels just to stand in the light of his resurrection and we let God define who we are? What would it be? Let's pray to that end. Father, we come in this moment and we acknowledge that we find the shadows on most days very convenient. We find ourselves becoming comfortable and content and even praising the shadows and justifying them. But Lord, I pray that in this moment or at some point in time, we would step out. We would step out and behold the glory of heaven in the face of the resurrected Jesus. Because we know 
that when that light shines on us, it resurrects us as well. So Lord, may we not be content with the shadows. May we not be content with the grave. But may we experience the power of resurrection. Let it be so, Lord. Let it be so. In Jesus' good and powerful name, and everybody said,